Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. Excuse me, we've been walking through the book of Proverbs, learning about the wisdom of God. Now, by way of reminder, the the strongest evidence indicates that King Solomon wrote nearly all the Proverbs except for some in the last few chapters. The introduction of Proverbs clarifies that there are three types of people that will read the book, the wise, the fool, and the young or naive. The wise are those who walk in the fear of the Lord. On the path of life where one grows wiser still, they remember that wisdom, right, it's not defined in the book of Proverbs as mere knowledge or intelligence or how quickly you process information, but how consistently you process it with an acute awareness of who God is, how well you align yourself to God, to His nature, to His truth, to His ways. That is what the wise remember and know. And so the wise walk in the fear of the Lord. Now, fools despise wisdom and destruction. If they fear anyone, they fear man, not God. And theirs is the path of death and destruction because they ignore God and don't give much weight to what He has said. Now, lastly, the young and inexperienced haven't yet proven which path they'll take, the wise or the foolish path. Will they fear the Lord and walk the path of wisdom, or will they fear man and walk the path of folly? And so they stand at a crossroads, and over time their life will prove out as either wise or foolish. Now, since the Proverbs illustrates how the wise and the fool and the naive differ in their posture toward God and His truth, we must recognize that there's a dynamic nature in our interaction with the book of Proverbs. When we expose ourselves to the book of Proverbs, oftentimes we are focused on interpreting it. But that's only half of what's going on. At the same time, we're interpreting it as God's Word, it is interpreting us. And the question is, how will it interpret us? Will it prove that we are wise or foolish? What will the Proverbs say of you? Will you listen to them and hear them and grow in wisdom, or will you dismiss them and carry on in the ways of folly? Well, let us pray. And then we'll dig in, and we'll begin to find out. God, thank you for revealing your wisdom to us through the book of Proverbs. We often assume that we are wise when actually we may be foolish or naive. Help us to posture ourselves before you and your word with humble hearts, having a fear of the Lord so that we can truly become wise and grow in wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 5 contains a single poem that praises marital fidelity by warning about the nature of cheaters and the consequences of adultery. And the poem exhorts faithfulness in marriage and closes by warning 
that those who choose adultery choose death. There are three phrases that summarize the big ideas of this chapter. First, listen or else. Second, delight and be satisfied. And third, remember the gospel. First, listen or else. Listen to wisdom or else get scammed. Get hustled by a hustler, literally. I'll read through the first several verses and comment as we go. Verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Last week, Dr. Light gave an excellent summary of the first four chapters of Proverbs. And in chapter one, he showed us how Proverbs lays the foundation of the house of wisdom. And then chapter two, three, and four build up the house of wisdom with three pillars. The first pillar is a heart to listen to the Lord, recognizing that God is the source of wisdom. The second pillar is a heart of trust, recognizing that we, we, we need to lean into the Lord, trust the Lord, and lean not on our own understanding. And the third pillar is a guarded heart. We need to protect and keep our heart with all diligence. Now, after laying the foundation for the house of wisdom and building it up with these three pillars, Solomon turns his attention to the first threat to this house of wisdom, and it is a most dangerous homewrecker. Notice, as a father, Solomon pleads with his son to be very wary of this homewrecker. Verse 1, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear so that you see through the deceptions of this forbidden woman. If you want to keep discretion, if you want to guard knowledge, if you want to keep your head about you and maintain your common sense and your sanity, he's saying, listen, guard what I say, let it sink in deep, or else you are a sitting duck for destruction and ruination. Now, a quick aside, the Hebrew word translated forbidden woman literally means strange woman. Strange, not meaning weird, but a stranger. Well, she may be weird too, but that's beside the point. A strange woman refers to any woman that is a stranger to the covenant of marriage. In other words, anyone that's not your spouse. That is why the ESV translates it as the forbidden woman. The father's message to the son is she is forbidden as a sexual partner simply because you're not married. She's not forbidden because of her character. You may think she is lovely and wonderful. She is forbidden because of her place in your life. You're not married. She doesn't belong to you. Dr. Fred Putnam says it this way, an intimate relationship with someone other than your spouse is inappropriate because it transgresses the marriage bond, and violates the marriage covenant, regardless of the predispositions or pre, uh, predilections of the person or persons involved in the affair. 
In other words, biblically speaking, there is no mitigating circumstance, no sufficient excuse to justify sex outside of marriage. The meaning of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible is clear. Sex is forbidden outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, I've worked on a secular college campus for 20 years, so you can imagine how this goes over. But I'm increasingly aware that even in the church, with church-attending people, these words sound unreasonable and even harsh. But I think that's only evidence that we've been pickling in the brine of our sexually promiscuous culture for a long time. And it has softened us on the whole issue of sexual immorality and soured us to God's beautiful and good design for human sexuality. And that's why we need to read God's Word, read it for ourselves, really read it so that we can snap out of our delusions. Notice Solomon does not pull his punches. He doesn't let up. Continuing in verse 3, he clarifies that this beautiful woman is not only forbidden, she is a mirage. Adultery always is, because what she offers is not real. It is at best a short-lived fantasy that turns out to be a horror film over time. She is a con, and she's not just deceiving you. She's deceiving herself. Notice, she offers one thing but delivers the opposite. She offers in verses 3 and 4 sweetness. She drips honey from her lips. But in the end, she delivers bitterness, gall. She offers comfort. She's smooth as oil but delivers pain. In verse 5, she offers the good life, but she delivers a terrible death. Her feet go down to death in Sheol. See, Solomon wants us to see before it's too late that her honey and her oil will be your embalming fluid. And in verse 6, he looks past her beauty and he says, he, he bids us to, he says, look past the makeup and the fashion and notice she is thoughtless, aimless, and clueless. Thoughtless. She does not ponder the path of life. Aimless, her ways wander, clueless, and she doesn't even know it. Now, of course, anyone willing to steal another away from their spouse and family, that person likely doesn't have the character to make for a healthy, sustainable relationship. Such self-absorption makes them dangerous to themselves and others. Now, before I continue, I, I want to address something that at least uh, a few of you are thinking, which is Solomon sounds a little bit sexist here. For instance, why does Solomon seem focused on women as uniquely seductive and thus dangerous? Can't men be just as dangerous, if not more so, because of the power they have in society? And yes, they can be. And other parts of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible illustrates this ugly reality quite vividly. But to make sense of this passage, we have to remember something about Proverbs. Proverbs is poetry. And the key poetic instrument used throughout Proverbs is something called personification. Personification is when you take an abstract concept and give it human characteristics. And poets used it in order to illustrate what was hard to understand. So if you're writing to a bunch of young men, this is how to get them to understand. 
And throughout the book of Proverbs, wisdom is always personified as a woman, never a man. Now, some of you ladies are thinking, that sounds about right. The feminists push that a bit further. They look at Lady Wisdom in the Proverbs and they they turn her into a god named Sophia or they find ways to elevate women above men, suggesting in more ways than one that, that women really know what's going on and men are ignorant. Women are on top and men are appendages. As Gloria Steinman said, a woman needs a man about as much as a fish needs a bike. But on the other hand, throughout the book of Proverbs... Folly is also personified as a woman, not a man. And some of the men are looking at their wives saying, I I didn't say it, but maybe the pastor has a point. (laughs) But the chauvinists push this a little bit further, right? They, They look at folly personified in the Proverbs as a woman to justify elevating men above women, suggesting that men know best simply because they're men and they're male. But thankfully, the Proverbs aren't written by a feminist or a chauvinist. It's written by artists that have a heart for piercing poetry. And the immediate context of Proverbs 5 is a dad speaking to his son. And even though, yes, the general principles apply to everyone, because the audience, the original audience is men, wisdom is personified as one of the three most important women in any man's life. His mom, his girlfriend, and his wife. So wisdom first shows up as a matron. Early on in Proverbs, she enforces wisdom top-down, like any good mom does. She knows her young son is naive and naturally foolish. He doesn't value wisdom in and of itself. He, He must be taught to value wisdom, and she will teach him it whether he likes it or not. And when wisdom speaks as a matron, as a mother, she's not afraid to be direct and disciplinary and even and even scold him at times, saying, I warned you, don't blame me, you should have listened. But as the boy matures, as he grows, wisdom takes on a new persona. Wisdom is personified as an attractive young maiden, someone worth noticing and pursuing. And the main difference between a boy and a young man is that a young man has learned that girls aren't yucky, that they have beauty. But a boy, see, he still sees wisdom like a gross and annoying girl who thinks she knows it all and is a killjoy. And if that's the way you view wisdom, if that's the way you read Proverbs, you're still a boy. You're not a man. But when a young man reaches maturity, he no longer is fooling around. He's not just pursuing wisdom to date her. He is not content for that. He is ready to commit. And so he marries wisdom, and she becomes his life partner. And at the end of the book, as you follow the poetic arch, we're given a picture of a sage, a wise man marrying Lady Wisdom, right? The Proverbs 31 woman. And they build a life together, and and he has children by her. And like I said, personification, right? This is beautiful, poetry. It pierces the heart. It's neither feministic nor chauvinistic. The writer's not picking on women as uniquely dangerous or seductive. He's poetically demonstrating through the interplay of a young man's relationship with these three most important women in his life that wisdom is worth pursuing. 
The wisdom of pursuing faithful love and the blessings that come with it, that's the point. As well as the folly of giving into your lusts and the consequences to everyone when you do. Now, as we read through the Proverbs, Solomon is saying you really need to beware because distinguishing between wisdom and folly is not always easy. Folly doesn't always look foolish or unattractive. Notice the adulteress, this woman folly, isn't described as a green witch with a big wart on her nose. Look at verse 3. Her lips drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. She's attractive, but make no mistake, if you go after her beauty, it will be a fatal attraction for you. And just as a mosquito is fatally attracted to that beautiful ultraviolet light of the bug trap, so the warning to us is clear. We need to see past her beauty. Don't be as dumb as a blood-sucking insect, in other words. Her lips may drip honey, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. One of the most vivid ways that folly wrecks a person's life and home is adultery. It's no joke. And we must call out all the euphemisms that keep us from seeing the danger and the destruction that this brings into our lives. David Levithan, our author of The Lover's Dictionary, said it this way. Who came up with the term cheating anyway? A cheater, I imagine. Someone who thought liar was too harsh. Someone who thought devastator was too emotional. The same person who thought, oops, he'd gotten caught with his hand in the cookie jar. But this isn't about slipping yourself an extra $20 of Monopoly money. These are our lives. And you went and broke our lives. You are so much worse than a cheater. You killed something. And you killed it when its back was turned. See, we must take the necessary action steps to preserve our life and home by seeing the real danger of this woman folly, this forbidden woman, this seductress. And what steps must we take? Look at verses 8 through 14. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ears to my instructors. I am on the brink of utter ruin in the assembly of the whole congregation. See, Solomon shows that the danger cannot be overstated. His warning is clear. His prohibition is absolute. Keep far from her in verse 8. Don't go near the door of her house, meaning don't even go to places where you're likely to find her even when she's not there. This is an absolute. If you are tempted by her, stay away from her, stay away from her spaces. Why? Because he knows a lustful heart works hard to trick itself and to justify itself. Well, this heart says, I'll just go over her house because I'm sure she needs help with her car and changing the oil. And then one thing leads to another. 
And Solomon's saying, send her to Sears or Walmart to get her oil changed. You, if you are tempted by this woman, you stay away. Stop playing with fire. And here the writer fleshes out the or else consequences of marital infidelity. Listen or else. Verse 9 describes the dangers of not just losing your honor, but your years to the merciless. That's quite an all-inclusive way to describe the loss. Your years include not just time, but work product, money, reputation, comfort. I mean, notice to whom everything is lost as well. It's the merciless. In other words, the loss will prove not just persistent and unyielding, but without mercy. I recently read an article about the rise of suicide incidents due to sexting scams. Once seduced into sending or receiving sexualized text images, merciless actors leverage their control and blackmail those they've ensnared. Send me money or else I'll send these pictures to your spouse, your children, your neighbors. And after paying out for months and learning they have no way out, some have taken their lives. Now, as an aside, if you've been trapped in similar ways, there is a way out. But it requires confession and repentance. And yes, there will be consequences. But though this world is merciless, we worship a God of mercy. And there is hope and mercy for you. Continuing on in verse 10, describes another devastating consequence, right? What is promised to your family must now be divided with outsiders. Now, remember the original audience was Solomon's son, the royal family. So, Solomon knows that gold diggers are likely to target his family. But apart from that, all adultery victimizes the innocent spouse and family. But this victimization is compounded as financial resources now have to be split with the adulteress and her family. And the ruin is beyond personal. It it, it impacts whole family systems here and even the community. And the result of those choosing adultery is pain, regret, and shame. Notice a consuming pain in verse 11. At the end of your life, you groan when your life and body are consumed. Deep regret, verses 12 and 13. You say, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. Verse 14, public shame. I'm on the brink of utter ruin in the assembly of the congregation. So in summary, there's no pretending the cost of marital infidelity is somehow worth it. It never has been and it never will be. Not when you add up all the costs that everyone must pay. Listen or else. Listen to wisdom or else get hustled by a hustler, literally. So first, listen or else. Second, delight and be satisfied. That's the second main phrase that summarizes this poem. Delight in who God has given you and be satisfied and blessed. Picking up at verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. 
Solomon uses two metaphors to describe the nature of sexual marital love, water to drink and game to hunt. The first metaphor is water to drink. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Notice two types of water identified here. There's the private and special water from your cistern, your well, and then there's the public common water, verse 16, running water that flows into the streets and the public squares. And two implicit warnings about marital infidelity are given here. The first is the warning of losing something valuable to others should your water be wasted and lost in the streets. And the warning, the second warning is the warning of contaminating something pure, fresh, and good. See, in ancient cities and villages, city streets were the public sewer of the day. Horse manure piled up in the streets. Chamber pots were emptied out the window into the streets. So street water was not only something that tasted not so good, By comparison, it made you sick. So the poem illustrates what we all know. Depending on how you use sex and sexual intimacy, it can be either wonderful and refreshing or horrible and deadening. It can be life-giving or death-dealing. It can sustain and build a healthy relationship or it can cause great dysfunction and great sickness in that relationship. And God's enemies, the flesh, the world, and Satan only want you to focus on the good of this forbidden dangerous woman and ignore the dangers until it's too late. These kingdom enemies treat you like a fish that they want to, you know, they want to catch you and eat you for dinner. Gaze upon, upon the big fat worm, but ignore the hook. And once on the hook... They reel you in, hoping you won't put up much of a fight. To weaken your resolve, they tend to use the bad, now at this point, the hook, to corrupt the good. Oh, you're hooked now. You might as well give up. And slowly your resolve to fight diminishes as love is replaced by sex. And then sex descends into addiction with all of its ugliness. Increased desire, decreased satisfaction, and deadening pleasure. And the end is just sexual cynicism. And the evil one is laughing his head off because it's the cruelest trick of hell to take this beautiful gift and ruin it. And so, Solomon says, ignore the lures of the world and delight and what God has given you. Delight in the water source God has given you. If you're married, it's your spouse. Now, since this was written initially to young men, it focuses on treasuring feminine beauty. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, verse 18. And rejoice is a good word here. To rejoice is to have to make a choice, to choose to enjoy, to choose to value, to choose to delight, to treasure her. We celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary, and on our wedding ring, the day we got married, we had inscribed, Marty and I had inscribed the same, the same phrase, I am my beloved, and she is mine. At least I think that's what it says. I can't read it anymore. <laughs> it's there. And I, I know that's what it says, and this ring is a reminder for me to rejoice in one of God's greatest gifts to me my wife. And she has the same inscription, and she makes the same choices. And the truth is, we can both 
choose to find things to be annoyed with in each other. And we can both play the comparison game. And I know there are husbands that are much less naturally irritable by nature than me. And it humbles me to recognize this pattern of sin in my life. But I know that despite my weakness, Marty loves me. She is faithful. And she loves me because of my strengths and in spite of my weakness. And her choosing to delight in me blesses me more than I can express. And my choosing to delight in her blesses her. It is a tall glass of refreshing water that restores soul and mind and body, not just for me and her, but for our kids and for our church and our community. Delight in what God has given you and be satisfied. Not just you, but let that satisfaction become contagious in your family. So the first metaphors to describe what marital love is like is a tall drink of water, pure and private. Let it be yours alone. The second metaphor is game to hunt. Verse 19, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. The desire and sensuality described in verse 19 here hardly seems appropriate to preach in a mixed audience with children present. We may be too embarrassed to admit that we understand the thrill of the hunt for a romantic partner, the thrill of the chase, the eagerness to sacrifice, to spend time and money, to travel far and wide pursuing the one who captivates our heart. But the father implores his son to remember that passion that he had for his wife when she first captivated him. Recall the excitement of young love and keep its flame aglow. Don't let it grow cold. Breathe on any simmering embers of romance until they reignite into flame. And when rekindling a romance, as when rekindling a fire, yes, the experience may produce more smoke than fire initially. But you are called to persevere until the smoke clears and the flame lights. Delight in what God has given you and be satisfied. And then the the, the writer closes, Solomon closes by exposing the twin thieves of this delight, ingratitude and envy, picking up in verse 20. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare him. The cords of their sin hold them fast. For the lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. See, when you don't choose to delight and be satisfied in your spouse, you grow more vulnerable to the twin robbers of a happy marriage, thanklessness and comparisons, letting such envy and ingratitude into your heart and into your home not only has practical consequences, stealing away the contentment and happiness you could otherwise have, it also has moral and spiritual consequences because God himself is a perfectly faithful lover, and he is a jealous God, and he abhors wandering hearts. He despises unfaithfulness. And here's the thing, nothing is hidden from him. Your spouse may never find out, but your ways are in full view of the Lord. And ultimately, the evil of infidelity always ensnares, holds fast, and brings death, relationally and spiritually. So there you have it, Proverbs 5, a warning poem about the fatal attraction of marital infidelity. Two major themes woven like threads throughout the poem, listen or else, 
delight and be satisfied, and they create a beautiful covering to help protect you from fatal attractions, the fatal attractions of sexual immorality. Now, most people would stop here, but if I stopped the sermon here, I would be doing you all a disservice. First, I've not addressed those who are single and remain so and, and may remain so for quite a, quite a while, the single people who might be asking, how does this apply to me? And second, I haven't addressed the elephant in the room, which is why should I obey Proverbs 5 when the Solomon who wrote it didn't obey and trust it? I know some of you have asked about that because Chris has told me. He's like, people keep coming up and asking me about this. He's going to talk more about that. I'll let him do the heavy lifting, but I'm going to touch upon it here. Let me start with Solomon. In 1 Kings 11, when Solomon's life is summarized, we learn that not only did he violate the original design of marriage, one man and one woman described at creation by marrying multiple women, 700 wives, 300 concubines, he did exactly what God commanded kings not to do. It also says that the, many of the women he loved were foreign women, who the Lord said, you shall not intermarry, for they will turn your hearts after their idols and their gods. And the Lord became so angry with Solomon that he promised, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you. And so how do, how do we make sense of this, knowing that this is the man who wrote Proverbs 5? Well, first, we must acknowledge that Solomon's words are still wise and true, even if he didn't practice what he preached. Just because Solomon was a hypocrite doesn't mean the principles he taught were wrong. In fact, the principles he taught played out just as you'd expect if they were 100% true. Solomon's family went from bad to worse. His poor example led to devastating uh, consequences practically, relationally, spiritually. Israel was split. The throne was torn away. Ten tribes left, uh, left him. There was civil war. There was idolatry committed throughout the lands of Israel for generations. See, ta- Solomon taught, listen or else, and delight and be satisfied. But his failure to practice what he preached resulted in quite a bit of or else consequences. And Ecclesiastes shows that Solomon surrendered his delight and life turned meaningless for him like chasing after the wind. And so while we we should not follow Solomon's example, we should still listen to his warnings for God spoke through him using even his failures to confirm the truth of the poem he wrote. Second, how does this apply to me if I'm not married? Well, the fact of the matter is whether you're married, single, divorced, or widowed, the heart of Proverbs, which is the wisdom of faithfulness and sexual uh, purity, it applies to all of us. It applies to you, just as the folly of unfaithfulness and sexual impurity applies to you. Solomon's life proves if you can't be content with one spouse, you won't be content with a thousand. An unfaithful heart that refuses to listen and take warning and fails to to delight in what he already has, cannot be content. That is why I can say a similar thing to the unmarried. If you cannot learn to be content without a spouse, you're not likely to be easily contented once you have one. And so what is our hope? It's one word, gospel. We must remember the gospel. We must look to someone greater than Solomon, Someone who was not only wise, but also faithful and true. Someone who chose to love his spouse 
faithfully and sacrificially, even when that spouse was not beautiful. And even when that spouse herself proved unfaithful. See, Jesus is the greater son of David, and therefore he is the better Solomon. Jesus is perfectly wise and faithful and true, and Jesus became our perfect bridegroom. And the hope of Christianity is that we can be in a forever relationship with him. And when we commit ourselves to him and behold his beauty, when we look to him, we have all that we'll ever need or desire. For in living with him, we learn how much we are cherished and loved. We just sang about it. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Waking up with someone this beautifully faithful starts your day out on a totally different foot. In doing life with Jesus, we discover unending joy and secret delights, not only that transcend the disappointments and discouragements of this life, but that transform them into unexpected blessings. And so how does this apply? Look to Jesus as the better Solomon, as your true bridegroom, and it will transform your life and your marriage Single, married, divorced, widowed, you will have all that you need in Him. Though you desire marriage, and that's very understandable, when you know you have the perfect bridegroom already, it does make a difference. And though you might be disappointed in marriage and you might have an unhealthy marriage, you will have all the resources if Jesus is your true bridegroom to love sacrificially, to love well even when it's hard. When when I got married, the, the man officiating our minister said one of the most helpful things. I repeat it in every uh, marriage I officiate. He said to me, Dave, Marty will never be enough for you. She wasn't created to be enough for you. Only Jesus Christ will be enough for you. And as much as you remember that Jesus Christ is enough for you, then you will be able to love Marty for what she's meant to be is God's good gift to you. But if you forget that, oh boy, you will begin to demand things in your relationship will go south because you will turn her into an idol. And I've seen it play out in marriage after marriage. Never a truer word has been spoken. And so look to Jesus as your better Solomon, as your true bridegroom. And not only will you have all you need, but it will transform your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Proverbs. Thank you for being so honest with us, for writing things, though they might be hard to hear, and they expose us, and they interpret us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to posture our hearts in a humble way toward you, that we might learn from this and grow. And I pray particularly for those who have been victims of this type of brokenness. We didn't have time to to get into all the consequences of that and how to heal from that, but Lord, I pray that you would draw close to them, and we might have time to talk about those things, and you would bring healing into their lives. And we pray for those who have fallen in this way and perpetrated acts of adultery. We pray that you would bring confession and repentance and forgiveness and new life and restoration. Lord, you are a God of mercy, and your mercies are new every morning, and we pray that you would help us to experience them. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. 
Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.